Well, I decided, people were telling me I looked so much like Bob Goff, we had him here a few weeks ago, I decided to just go ahead and lean into it. So I'm going to go ahead and, and wear, the, wear the hat. Now, I was told the first service, I tried to do it the whole service, but then they told me it puts shadows on my face. So uh, not that you care, but I'm going to go ahead and not, not wear that. But uh, I was reading this week, so much stuff going on in the world. And I saw a tweet from the Moscow Times, which is an independent newspaper since 1992, uh, Russian newspaper. And they, they were t- quoting a, the gal who is the woman who is the Russian commissioner of children's rights in Russia. Uh, so she works for the Russian government. And she was talking on the condition of kids that the Russians took from Ukraine when they would conquer territory. They would maybe because they killed the parents, I don't know, but they imprisoned the parents, I don't know, but they took kids from Ukraine and brought them back to Russia to assimilate them into Russia. So here's her quote. She said this, I guess she thought this would comfort people, but she said, when we brought them to the Moscow region so that they could get their strength back, at first, they were negative about the president and said nasty things. They sang the Ukrainian anthem and that sort of thing. But later... That negative attitude turned into love for Russia. Now, you get them at a young enough age and you do it right, you kind of assimilate them right in. And it just struck me that the assimilation strategies of conquering armies hasn't changed at all in thousands of years of human history. Because we've been looking at exactly this. In 605 BC, the the Babylonian Empire was emerging and they were conquering everybody. New empire, replaced Assyria. Keith talked about that last week. And they're conquering all the nations, all the people around them in the ancient Near East. What they would do is when they conquered you, they would, the strategy was to take the the elite classes, the artisans, the the scholars, the government officials, the elite crop of the, you know, cream of the crop people and bring them back to Babylon in order to assimilate them into the values and beliefs of Babylon. And what they particularly did, a particular strategy was to take young kids, teenagers, and bring the teenagers back and put them in these kind of advanced, if they were really sharp, really the cream of the crop elite, they would put them in these advanced leadership academies for years, three years it says, and, and then make them, develop them into people who would be really talented elite leaders over Babylon. And that's what we read in the first chapter. And that really is the story that is the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. Today we're going to talk about Daniel chapter 3, where it talks about not Daniel, might be narrated by Daniel, but Daniel is not in it. But it's his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But for us to understand chapter 3, we got to go back and read the last verse of chapter 2. Verse 49 said this. It said, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators. So they were part of the kids, the teenagers they brought back from Jerusalem. They went through the advanced leadership academy for three years and then eventually Daniel is, you gotta, he's in with the king and he talks him into appointing his three friends administrators over the province of Babylon. Remember that, the province of Babylon while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Now, so what they're doing, Daniel and his three friends, they 
were Jews brought back from Jerusalem to Babylon, and they're serving for the good of Babylon. They're committed to helping Babylon flourish. They're doing exactly what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 29. He, when you go to Babylon, pray and work for the prosperity of the city. And that's what they're doing. They're working for the good of Babylon. But always with that is a challenge to their own good. And in that sense, chapter three, although it really happened, chapter three is a, a little capsule in this book that's kind of an allegory of your life and my life as exiles. Remember two weeks ago we talked about how the New Testament describes, uses this whole thing and talks about how every Christ follower is a kind of exile in a Babylon somewhere. Babylon is whatever country, whatever culture you're in, there's good things, there's bad things about it. But as exiles who are you know, citizens of heaven but also citizens of the Babylon we're in, we work for the good, but when we work for the good of Babylon, with it always comes the challenge to our, to our own good. And so we're going to see how that works in this chapter. And so let's just get right in it because the very first verse presents the problem. And that is this. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the, well, there's there again, the province of Babylon. <laughs> so... Uh, it turns out that Daniel got his three friends appointed administrators right in the heart of where Nebuchadnezzar is building this monument. I kind of think of it as a smaller version of something like the Washington Monument, that kind of you know, that kind of scale. And he builds a smaller version of this, and it was a monument to the gods of Babylon. And we know that because of what is going to be said here in the middle of this chapter, but we also know it because we have this document that was a Babylonian document discovered from the time of, of Nebuchadnezzar that was written by Nebuchadnezzar. And I just brought a few sentences out because it relates to the, what we're talking about in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar writes this in this ancient Babylonian document. He says, my statue is king, I erected for posterity. May future kings respect the monument. Remember the praise of the gods. So this monument is for the praise of the gods, and it's a praise of the Babylonian gods. It kind of represents all the Babylonian gods. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he has this big dedication service. After he builds this monument, he's kind of it's built, now it's ready to be used. So he has a huge dedication service, and he has a praise band in front of the monument and everything, and he summons, not invites, he summons all the leaders of Babylon, all the officials, to come and to worship the image. And so all the leaders, all the government people, all the people that are elite in the culture of Babylon come and they're standing before this monument to the gods of Babylon. And they stand before it and it says this in verse four, then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, all kinds of music. These are all instruments in the Old Testament, by the way. They're the common instruments of the time. Big orchestra kind of thing. Praise band. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship immediately will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, that's what you call cultural pressure. That's what you call intimidation. Because 
suddenly everybody becomes a true believer. Not because somebody persuaded them that the gods of Babylon are worthy of your worship, not because there was any debate, not because anybody provided a logical argument why we should worship the gods of Babylon, but because of the intimidating pressure that if you don't, you're going to have to go to the furnace. Now, we sometimes say, you know, that if we, we have this term that if you might get canceled, but that's literally being canceled. You're being thrown into this big pizza oven and you're going to be incinerated. That's, that's pressure. And so everybody has bought in, not because they're convinced, but because they're intimidated not to. So it says in verse seven, therefore, because of the intimidated not to, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and they worshiped the image. See, this is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come into the story. Because see, they're right there appointed administrators in the province of Babylon where this monument to the gods of Babylon has been erected. And they don't go to the service. They don't go to the dedication service. Now, they're not denouncing the Babylonian gods. They're not writing things about, against the gods. They're not anything like that, not telling anybody else not to go. They just quietly, subtly don't show up. And they kind of get away with it because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even seem to notice. Some kind of time goes by, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't notice, or I don't know, maybe he does and he ignores it. But when you're in a culture, a, you know, when you're in a situation where demanded worship to the cultural gods is the cultural norm, somebody's going to be highly motivated to notice. And it turns out in this story, it says in verse 8, that the, in the NIV, if you read it, it says the astrologers came forward. If you read the English Standard Version, it says the Chaldeans came forward. What they're doing is trying to translate the word that appeared in chapter one. That was the group that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were part when they were part of the Advanced Leadership Academy, kind of the Hogwarts of Babylonian gods. They were part of that group. And now years later, these guys are appointed as administrators. And it looks like maybe past classmates who didn't get that kind of appointment, now see an opportunity to have them removed. And so they come to Nebuchadnezzar. Now notice how they do it. They come to Nebuchadnezzar and they say this in verse 12. Nebuchadnezzar, some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, here's the thing. What they're doing is they're saying, gosh, your majesty, looks like you have put people in charge that are really a bad reflection on you because they're making you look like a fool. And so Nebuchadnezzar gets angry. But remember back in verse six when he said, whoever doesn't fall down and bow to the gods is gonna be immediately thrown into the furnace? turns out not so much. He wants to give them a second chance. And so for whatever reason, he seems to really like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he comes and again, his own image is on the line. His reputation now is on the line. These astrologers, Chaldeans, made sure that was the case. And so Nebuchadnezzar said to them, to, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he says, 
Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. This never happened. We just move on. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. What Nebuchadnezzar is saying here is, look, I'm not saying that you have to worship the Babylonian gods instead of your God. It's not at all what I'm saying. Go ahead and worship your God in private. Go ahead and go to your synagogues. You guys seem to do that too. Go ahead, that's fine. But you must worship our gods in public. Now, honestly, if you don't, I don't want to, but I'm going to have to obey my own decree and put you in the furnace. Now, put yourself in this situation. Because, see, here's the thing. It's kind of a conversation where somebody seems to be, he's got this incredible authority. This is Nebuchadnezzar who's taken over all these countries and peoples in the ancient Near East, and he seems to be on your side. He doesn't want to do this. He's trying to give you an option to just second chance, and then none of this happened. We're all good, but if you don't, I, I can't not do what I said, so just do it. And it would be easy to kind of go find some way to justify doing both, the worshiping God privately and going to synagogue and in public, just physically doing an outward thing. I wouldn't mean it. It'd be really hard not to justify, there's a way I can do both. God knows my heart. He knows that I worship him. He knows that I believe in him. I, I don't believe in these Babylonian gods. I don't want to worship these Babylonian gods, but you know what? I'm going to keep the peace I don't, this is a way for us to kind of continue in our jobs and we're doing a lot of really good things in our jobs and I don't think other people are gonna do the good things that we're doing in our jobs and if we get removed in our jobs, a lot of bad things are gonna happen. So you could see how it would be really tempting to find a way to do both. And I think you and I find ways to do both in our culture now. I mean, for example, let's say you're in the business world. And those that, you're, that surround you in the business world are people who are ruthless in business. They're often dishonest to make a deal or to make a profit. And they're barely legal sometimes. And they are your competitors. So they're people who are getting ahead of you by being this way, or they might be colleagues, but you know how it is when you're working on a team, even if you're on the same team, Colleagues are kind of, sometimes it's easy to see them as competitors because at the end of the day, the value you bring is what you produce. And if other people are more productive than you, more profitable than you, then, then your job might not be safe or you might not get the promotion or, you know, it's, it's kind of messy. And so if you're a Christian and you decide, okay, I must be ruthless too in business. I must sometimes bend the truth. I must be dishonest sometimes. I, I, I must sometimes be barely legal because if I don't, I'm not gonna be successful or even worse, my job might not be safe. I might lose my job and I've got a family to take care of and I'm doing good things with my money and I'm even doing good things in my job in some ways and, and I give to the church and so Privately, you find a way to come to church, to believe in Jesus, but publicly, at work, you're just like everybody else. 
and you're bowing to the pressure. You're falling down to the cultural gods because it's so easy to do. I mean, do you see how the rationalization process works? It's just really smooth. And there's all kinds of issues in our lives like that. That's just one example. Somehow Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, probably because God gave them really great faith so they can be a story for us to read, but somehow they're at a point where they're not, it doesn't matter to them their safety. It doesn't matter to them their success. What matters to them is serving the true God who's eternal. He's the eternal one. And so the, verse 16 it said that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. In other words, whatever you say to us is not going to be a threat to us. We don't have to defend ourselves. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your, majest- your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now just notice, you know, they didn't show up to the dedication. They weren't wanting to make a big scene, but they just were quietly trying not to participate. But it obviously wasn't because they were cowards. Because here to King Nebuchadnezzar, they're saying, Okay, it doesn't matter what you, you can threaten us all you want, furnaces, whatever, dogs, whatever you threaten us, it's not going to work. We're not going to defend ourselves. Because see, here's the thing. We worship God for who he is, not for what may or may not happen to us. Because they said, even if he does not deliver us from your hand, well, that's not even the point. The, the, whatever, we're not going to, real faith doesn't predict what God's going to do. Real faith just obeys God's truth. So they're just gonna obey God's truth and they're not even, they're not even sure 100% what he's going to do. They got a suspicion because I don't know, but they, they're not gonna put God on the block and say he has to do it and make that the issue of their faith. God's the issue of their faith. God's truth, who God is is the issue of their faith. And so here's the thing. If, 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 if you're a Christian, uh, you know, we always have this thing where we want God to deliver us from tough situations. And sometimes God does, and sometimes God doesn't. Sometimes we live in the world of, but if not, and God doesn't. Even when it comes to the ultimate threat of death, it, God can obviously deliver you from death. And I think more times than we realize, God delivers all of us from death. Sometimes we see it. Sometimes you go, gosh, if I, if I hadn't had a flat tire, I would have been in that wreck and we would have all been killed. If I hadn't gotten pulled over by the cop, we would have all been killed. If I hadn't had to stop at that red light when I was trying to gun it, but I decided not to, I'd have been killed up there. Whatever, you know, we always have these situations. If not, then I would have died. But most of the time, we're just going through life clueless, chewing our gum, and God is delivering us from death. We just don't know it. There will be a time when he will not, and you and I will die. But here's, I think, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying when they say, but if not, we're still, we're, we're still going to be delivered from your hand either way. 
Because, see, I think what they're saying is, even even if I should die, I'm going to be delivered through death. If God is your God and God is, is eternal, then he's always eternally gonna be your God. Somehow they didn't understand it all, although we do get quite a bit of teaching on the resurrection in the book of Daniel. So maybe they did have a theology of that. But now that we're Christians and now we know the rest of the story, we can say this. It's easy for us to say this based upon so many passages in the Bible, so many things that Jesus even taught, that God may not deliver you from death At some point, he's not going to. You're going to die. But he is always, if God is your God, he is always going to deliver you through death. If you die in him, you wake up in his arms. That's the promise of the Bible. And so in that sense, when you know that, that bigger story, that eternal bigger story of why Jesus came, why he died, why he rose from the dead, you know that in the ultimate sense, you're always safe. And so nobody really can threaten you. All their threats are in a smaller story, but you're in this bigger story. So you say, I don't have to defend myself here. I'm not threatened. I'm gonna be fine either way because of who he is. So they say, no matter what you do, king, we're not threatened. We're gonna be safe. So the king immediately throws him into the furnace. And notice what happens. It says, then, the king Nebuch- then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet. I think it's a big pizza oven, like I said. I mean, I think it really is kind of a big pizza oven. It's got this big open gate to it. He jumped to his feet in amazement and said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now this is that little phrase right there. I got it in yellow so you can kind of see it. I mean, obviously, if you know the rest of the story of the Bible, you can't help but look at that and go, huh, that looks familiar. I wonder who that fourth person was. When Nebuchadnezzar just uses that language, a son of the gods, to describe the fourth person, that's his language. That's his worldview of saying that fourth person in there was some kind of divine being. This is what theologians call a theophany. It's a big word. just means a physical appearance of God. That's a theophany, a physical appearance of God. Here he's a fourth man in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, 600 years after this, 600 years later, God is going to do the ultimate physical appearance when he's born into the body of Jesus forever. And he's going to die on the cross and he's going to rise from the dead so that he can really deliver those whose God, he's their God, Uh, those whom he's their God, through death. And when when you know the rest of the story, and then you look back and you read this story, and you kind of realize that, well, let's just read, let's read the rest of the story. It says, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, all these royal advisors, the elite of the culture, crowded around them. They're all the ones who were bowing down and all that kind of stuff. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head, a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Now, I think this really happened. But remember when I said this is an allegory? I think that language is just loaded (laughs) with all kinds of layers of meaning. 
And I think that language, when you know the rest of the story of the Bible, remember Jesus went in Luke 24 and he showed his disciples all the places in the Old Testament that were pointing to him that must be fulfilled. I think when you know the rest of the story and you look back at this and you kind of see, this is a picture of the whole Bible. This is a picture of the story your life is in. Whatever fiery furnace your life is, and this Genesis 3 world is a fiery furnace all the time in all kinds of ways, but whatever it is, God has become human in the person of Jesus, and he has taken death upon himself, and he has broken through the other side of death, and he has risen from the dead, and there'll come a time when he returns, and that's going to be a description of you. Not a hair of your head sins. That your body, nothing had been harmed. He had, you have a resurrected body with glorified hair. I'm going to be like Godspell. It's just going to be flowing all over the place. And their robes were not singed. And they didn't have the smell of... There's a picture here that when Jesus becomes the fourth man in your life, so to speak, the presence of God, his death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. He becomes this for you. Now, the New Testament says you are in exile in Babylon. Wherever you are, everybody, every Christian in the world, no matter what country they're in, they are said in the New Testament to be, think of themselves as exiles in Babylon. Because every culture, every nation in some way has cultural gods, gods of pride, gods of, of power, prestige, image, pleasure. And, and, and it's so easy for these cultural values to become cultural gods and to demand conformity through threat. If you don't bow to the cultural gods, they're going to threaten you with this. And so if you're an exile in Babylon and you're serving for the good of Babylon and every Babylon has good things and bad things, but every Babylon has cultural gods, but you're serving for the good of Babylon, but with that comes the challenge for your own good because there's that pressure to bow to the gods because the threats are real. You don't always see them as in a smaller story, but they are in a smaller story every time, but they certainly don't seem any less real. You're not going to be able to resist the cultural gods all on your own, by yourself. Because, see, I think that one of the things that we often miss is the reason why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had such a calm confidence is because they also had each other. That's why you always see the words, we, us, we, us, never I, we, us. They had each other, and having each other helped them have more courage to resist the threats of the cultural gods and the demand to conform and bow. Do you have friends like that in your life? Do you have Christian friends? Let's say, let's say two more. Let's just be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're one of them. Do you have two more friends in your life? that have a faith in Jesus in such a way that they would encourage you not to bow to the cultural gods? Is that something that that you have in your life where you have those? Let let me ask you this. Let me just go to, as the worship team comes back up, I want to ask you two questions. Here's one right here. Do you have Christ-following friends that you want to be around, that you want to be with, and you want to be like? Are there Christ-following friends in your life that you want to be with and you want to be like? Now, let me let you 
kind of see the bigger picture. There's at least 3,000 people here that, that come to church here. And there's a couple other thousand that watch online. My guess is, in those thousands of people, there's probably three or four that will be the kind of people you want to be with and you want to be like. But you're not going to meet them unless you show up to the places where they are. And so there are all kinds of things in this church where they are. They're, if you're in college, there's Veritas. If you're a student, there's Crossing Students. If you're somebody in your 20s, there's Crossing 20s. If you're somebody outside those years, there's Crossing Women's Bible Studies. There's Crossing Men's Bible Studies. There's small groups. If you're somebody in your 50s, they got a great class in the second hour. That I think the second, I don't know what hour. But it meets over there in the student center called Crossing 50s. I don't know, something like that. They love it. There's all kinds of ways for you to meet people. And here's the thing. Here's the other question I want to ask you, and that's this. Are you a Christ-following friend that helps others resist the pressure and intimidation to bow to the cultural gods? Are you that kind of person? Not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to help you see that you're going to bow to the smaller story, these cultural gods, and you're going to miss out on the God that's eternal that created the entire universe being your God. Unless you live in the right story and survive as an exile in Babylon. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God that created the entire universe. You're the source of all existence. You're the giver of all life. You inhabit eternity and you are 100% always present with us in whatever fire we're in. And so we pray that you help us to find a we and an us and to be a we and to be an us in the lives of others so that we can live in the eternal story, the bigger story for which Christ came and lived and died and rose from the dead to give us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.